Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Greetings, listeners. This is Kevin McPherson, and today we are going to be interviewing a perennial force within the AOMPT group, and that is going to be Dr. Megan Donaldson. Uh, if you've gone to one of our conferences uh, recently, you have seen her work in action because she is the chair for the conference committee. Now, before we dive into her article, which is uh, titled The Effects of Hip-Targeted Physical Therapy Interventions on Low Back Pain, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, of which she was the senior author and the primary author was Brian Burnett, we're going to give you a brief background on her. So she received her bachelor's and master's degrees from the Deville College in Buffalo, New York. She also received a PhD from Nova Southeastern University, and much of her manual therapy uh, training has come from the fellowship program at Damon College in Buffalo, New York. Now, presently, uh, Megan is an assistant professor and a curriculum director for the physical therapy program at Tufts University, of which I've had a lot of difficulty finding any information on this. So, Megan, tell us about Tufts real quick before we dive into the article. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, so um, obviously I'm transitioning uh, into a new role, and uh, I'm currently a curriculum director, uh, assistant professor, as we start to um, develop the DPT program at Tufts University within the School of Medicine in Boston. So um, it will be a hybrid-style program, and uh, we're really excited to bring that to that area. And obviously this is a very exciting opportunity to be a part of a School of Medicine uh, and have PT work collaboratively within the school. I've really, I'm really loving the whole shift and movement into the hybrid model. Uh, and I, I've chatted with individuals from South, uh, as well as the program that they're kicking off uh, in Baylor and whatnot. So I'm sure you're going through a lot of growing pains and whatnot with the whole uh, credentialing process and being accredited and whatnot. Uh, how's that been moving forward for you? It keeps me busy. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, CAPT has a lot of standards, and our job is to uh, really establish, you know, a program that's going to meet those standards, exceed where we can, and obviously just turn out the best product uh, of a type of student that, you know, can be a change agent for our profession going forward. And so we take our job very seriously. We want to develop a good program, but obviously, you know, this is an accelerated model, it's a hybrid model. So we get to use those innovative strategies, and I'm excited about building that and, and developing that at Tufts. I uh, love the progression that we're seeing. So uh, given you're busy, we'll try not to take too often much of your time. And we do thank you for hopping on to the podcast. So if you don't mind, could you just briefly describe the project and your outcomes and conclusions that you came to through this project? Absolutely. So, you know, this is one of those projects, I think, that definitely is derived from the sense that, um, you know, as a clinician, you would see a variety of different things in the clinic, right? How do we target and treat patients uh, with low back pain? And obviously, we use a lot of different strategies, a lot of the core, um, but we forget that the, the hip pelvis structures are also part of the core. And so really, how do we target those exercises and, and the gluteal muscles and glute med? Uh, 
Um, and, and while you're using the pelvic muscles, do you use, you know, what we would call more distal movement and make sure that they can keep that proximal control? And so the reality is, is I would see this clinically and I still work in the clinic one day a week. I have not given that up um, throughout my time in academia because I think it really gives that clinical relevance to what we teach and what I research. And so that was kind of my question. The question was really what benefit is there in targeting these hip muscles when we have patients with low back pain? And so um, that's kind of where it was derived from. Um, you know, this is a systematic review. So with those, uh, there's a lot of meat in the article, but um, in essence, you can you can always register these through Prospero. You'll see um, statements called Prisma, and that is basically assuring that we're doing the right kind of reporting and guideline structure for these type of uh, studies. Uh, we look at risks of bias, and unfortunately, you know, with studies that have been out for a while, there's always a little bit higher risk of bias that we have to consider, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later as we dive into it, but um, we we have a total of... Um, uh, there were 17 articles that were actually initially looked at, but then only six met our inclusion criteria. And so that's where we kind of looked at those a little bit further. We did um, a qualitative and quantitative analysis, um, quantitative through the uh, meta-analysis to look at the effect sizes of the um, type of exercises. And that's where we're at. So that's that was the essence of the study. And your, what, what did you find? What was the outcome that came about? Yeah, so unfortunately, there's high heterogeneity within the study, and so um, we, we couldn't really find that there was significant effect of adding the hip exercises, but because of the high heterogeneity, it, it does make our findings a little bit hard to just say absolute truths, right? We have to appreciate that um, some studies had better effects than others, but um you know, the reality of this is each of those studies, one in size and one in style and design, um, made it a hard comparison amongst all of them when you do a pooled analysis. And that's kind of one of the things that I was looking at when I was reading the study, because uh, right or wrong, one of the first thing that pops into my mind population-wise for a hip-related uh, component to that person's pain presentation, is that more geriatric patient who has a flexion bias, whether or not they've got that neurogenic claudication or, or the lumbar stenosis presentation. You know, I always go after them. I didn't really get the feel through the description of the mean age and standard deviations that that group was uh, added in here. Well, and so that's just an element of the included studies. There was no limitation to the age of included participants within those studies. Like we didn't put that as a limitation. Um, so really, unfortunately, it, it is a selection bias that, you know, those individual studies may have had, um, but definitely not excluded within um you know, what, what we were looking for. And I would agree with you. It is a little bit typically an older population that we see um, that may have some of these hip mobilities. But if you look at, you know, typically the mean age group that starts to have like low back pain, we're still looking at that mid-age population. And that is reflected here, the 30 to 50-year-olds, um, you know, maybe some of those early stage degenerative changes are kicking up a little bit. Um, and so that is reflected here more so than the, the stenotic type um, that would have more mobility Issues. These might be more people who could benefit from some control and uh, some stabilization type activities. Mm -hmm. 
and I appreciate that that response because it, it does come down to what goes into the study, especially these types of studies is really going to dictate what goes out. Uh, the, the, the term that comes to mind is the garbage in, garbage out. And you guys, obviously using Prisma uh, as a guiding force, really try to help hone in what comes out on the other end. Now, uh, go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, and I think you're you're spot on right. Um, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But here's what we know. Everyone reads an article, and we don't always evaluate it for its total worth against other articles. We take out what we want. Um, unfortunately, that also causes bias. And so, you know, we can we can discuss the benefits and, you know, I would say the risks of using too many systematic reviews for decision making, but really what it is supposed to do if done well is to synthesize the evidence for a clinician or the reader and help you to identify maybe, again, evaluate for what it's worth, but just a bigger lens. It's multiple studies being synthesized at once. Um, so instead, you're not just looking at one article and taking it for truth, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, it's still in the big picture of things, you know, Randomized clinical trials, a lot of them still have a ton of flaws, especially ones that do dosage or exercise type reporting, which we can talk about. Um, but this is definitely, a, you know, a lot of these studies were high risk of bias. Um, so it does make some of those interpretations a little difficult for, you know, a reader or a clinician. So you're right about that. So let's speak to that bias a little bit more, because one of the statements out of your article is, uh, quote, we found the quality of evidence for the primary outcomes of pain and disability to be low due to a high risk of bias. And that seems to be a very consistent statement across meta-analyses within this direct human-to-human -human intervention type of research. And part of me, like part of what I consider the confounder is that really these types of research projects, so the RCTs in specific, were not really developed to have uh, or to be used in a human-to-human -human interaction. It was more looking at that drug, looking at that uh, inert substance and seeing what kind of comparisons you get out of that. So how do you feel about the fact that we're always getting nicked on that, that bias component, given that we're really limited on what we can do for correcting it? Yeah, and, and I appreciate that. So, you know, there are several different types of risk of bias tools, right? So the Cochrane risk of bias, um, which is more the standard um, tool that I would say if most people are doing um, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, you know, it's because it's consistent amongst all readers, whether you're in medicine or, you know, in a kind of interprofessional uh, type of healthcare person. Pedro is also a risk of bias tool that we in physical therapy have been, you know, familiar with. And still, if you look at that type of um, that risk of bias tool there, you still see that they have, um, you know, two elements that are going to ask you about uh, the blinding of subjects and then the blinding of assessors. And so, you know, again, we're looking to see if there's that Hawthorne or those pl um, placebo type effects. If the patient knows what type of um, exercise that they're going to get, or what type of intervention they're going to get, will they have already believed, right, that, that there's an effect from that? And so that kind of goes into the patient expectations element. And even from that, we identify equal pose, right, from a therapist perspective. So if the therapist has a bias towards one type of actual uh, intervention, maybe they have biased the study. So, you know, unfortunately, these blinding strategies aren't always easy in clinical practice studies or research studies, especially RC that are of, you know, what I would consider rehabilitative, um, hands-on clinician 
um, type. But they, they're there for a reason to help reviewers identify, you know, that this may not all just be due to the actual intervention, that the risk of bias, uh, the actual, whether placebo effect or equipose, maybe the, the therapist could also affect, you know, the outcome that you're seeing. Having sat in and provided the intake paperwork for patients, uh, or sorry, for subjects uh, in the research field, uh, and seeing how long that takes, it, it really is questionable whether you want to add even more outcome surveys or whatnot, looking at equipose as well as the preferences of that patient. But it seems to me, if we're ever going to really jump over that hurdle, you know, we probably need to add that extra 15 minutes to get that from both the clinician side as well as the patient side. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. So I do a lot of clinical research and and I'll just be honest, we try to do it very pragmatically, right? So it fits in the clinic, it fits within the clinicians. Um, but let's be real. I mean, the time amount for, you know, outcome assessment is difficult and it requires patients to be able to invest that time repetitively, especially depending on how many times you're being assessed. You know, oftentimes you'll get a critique. Well, hey, why didn't I have a I have a study um, that's in review right now? And, you know, it was a six week trial. Um, and one of the biggest critiques is you should have carried this out longer. And that's that was that was a great feedback. You're absolutely right. I, I wish we could. However, in, in reality, unless these are grant-funded clinical trials, um, especially if we're just starting to initiate with ideas, that's very difficult to do. And so, you know, the amount of time and human resources accounted for that is, is quite large. And so, um, you know, I, I think that we have to appreciate a pragmatic trial for uh, its strengths and its weaknesses. And then obviously additional trials will, um, you know, either verify or, you know, um, contradict those findings. So many excellent points in there. And I really appreciate you breaking down some of those limitations on the researcher side, because having been a clinician for the vast majority of my career and only recently transitioned to academia, I wasn't aware of a lot of the limitations of both funding as well as the limitations with publishing, especially publishing in high impact journals or higher impact journals, uh, some of the demands of academia prior to that. So I'd always sit there as a consumer of research and say like, well, they totally messed up how they designed this or why they not take it out so long. So getting that information for you really helps me out with understanding some of that background um, systems that have to go into play with getting this evidence as well as distributing it. Yeah. So I'm curious, has a clinician, has somebody who's still seeing patients, has this work changed the way that you see or you treat patients with back pain? Yes, in the sense that, um, you know, I think it makes me more intentional about my dosage. Um, I will say that because I was able to review these articles uh, with my team of authors that, um, you know, what we find, to be honest with you, is that uh, I would say when you say garbage in, garbage out, it comes back to exercise. A lack of intention is a lack of an outcome. Um, when we don't intentionally dose or prescribe exercise to a therapeutic intent or that we're deriving towards a goal. So if we're, our goal is to strengthen somebody, then our dosage should be at a strength parameter, right? Mm -hmm. If we're looking yes. at endurance, then we should be having endurance-based um, dosage strategies. So, you know, here's, here's when I look at these articles. It's very frustrating because it was 
um, it was very random uh, in terms of their strategies for exercise, the type of exercise that were used, the mediums, so some were land and some were hydrotherapy. Um, so it, it was a very difficult study to actually really put um, any homogeneity and to, to identify, you know, in terms of a real meta-analysis. So we had to use the outcome measures, of course. But if you, if you really break down the dosage and the exercise, that is where I am very intentional in the clinic. And um, I think what we might need to look at is, you know, really using these better reporting of interventions, um, you know, for descriptions and replications for future studies. Had those studies actually had that information in it, I think we would have had more information to derive from this meta-analysis and um, systematic review. And in my, in my qualitative and just clinical experience, right? We make those decisions pragmatically based on the patient. We progress them to a certain point. But remember, not everybody's the same. So again, it goes back to the challenges of a clinical trial. How do you progress everyone to the same level? Is if, if it's prescriptive, that's a lot easier than if it's pragmatic because sometimes their pain gets in the way. But I do think if, if you're asking me from a clinical perspective, what's my translational um, element from this research? It's really to say, okay, be intentional about your exercise, that some patients do get better. Uh, who have low back pain, when you give a good therapeutic program that includes both low back rehabilitation as well as pelvic hip uh, rehabilitation. So Megan, when you're talking about prescribing that exercise, I, I hear the terms dosage as well as prescription. When I think about this population, there's really two types of dosage that come into my mind. One is that pure uh, exercise physiologist dosage, where you're looking to establish uh, a certain RM percentage that that person is moving through a certain number of reps in order to stimulate a certain type of adaptation within the tissue. But I also think about some of that motor control component where you're looking more at trying to establish a good uh, movement pattern out of that person. So are you working both sides of the coins? Are you matching that to make one single coin with your prescription? How is that coming into play? I think that's a great question. So, right, we, we have some of those strategies in the cervical spine with uh, uh, Jewel and um, Fala's work, you know, looking at the neuromuscular, neuromuscular coordination and control. Um, however, you know, we don't necessarily have that same type of assessment ability in the lumbar spine. I mean, we still have the biopressure feedback tool and we have some abilities to stage and grade that. Um, but I think it's definitely more difficult. I mean, you have a lot more ground reaction forces that come through the pelvis. Uh, when they're in an upright position that, you know, do not mimic when they're in a lab or um, on the mat table. Um, so I, I do think that when we're in neuromuscular control, that needs to be a foundational element before you're really strengthening somebody. And when you're doing a lot of the strengthening, do they have control? Do they have proximal stability before you're doing distal mobility? And if that's not the case, then you got to go back to the ground route and you got to stabilize to teach them. And when I say stabilize, I'm not saying that they're doing bracing, guys. I'm saying like that they're aware of their movement patterns, like they're coordinated. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, obviously if you follow Twitter, you can have a favorite who you want to follow. But, you know, some people are like, bracing doesn't matter. Stabilization doesn't matter. Make a move. Um, but the reality is, is mindful movement, right? Making them aware of their movement um, is, I think, an important strategy. It makes them to not stabilize and brace, but it makes them aware that they are co-coordinated movements, uh, definitely prior to starting any kind of uh, strengthening where they're actually building against weight uh, through movement. 
And if they can't oh. lift their limb, they shouldn't be adding weight. A fantastic response there. And it gets me also thinking, especially the component that you're talking about for the bracing and, and how there's some discrepancies in social media influencers and whatnot and what they're saying. Uh, what what I'd come back to with that statement is uh, Julie Weeby's work uh, and her kind of thought process when it comes to contracting the pelvic floor. Uh, historically, it's been a all or none. I believe bracing in my past and prescription has been like a you need to brace as hard as you can. And then she made a statement that was similar to, you know, if you contract your biceps after a uh, biceps or a elbow injury the same way, you're basically doing this maximum contraction in one point of your range of motion. It makes zero sense. So when you say that that coordinated mindful movement, you know, that that really speaks the idea of it, let's not make it too simple and let's not make it too basic, but let's also not make it too uh, advanced or too difficult to actually prescribe. Yeah, I've been in the clinic for years, right? So I, I actually listen a lot to the way that we instruct patients. And I and I think, you know, when we actually need to focus on is what we coach our patients to do with the words, um, because words are powerful. And so if you tell somebody to brace, what do you think they do? If you tell somebody to do a drawing maneuver, they're going to hold their breath. And so you really have to coach all of those pieces and parts, where if you start to get them to at least know what that feels like, right? And then allow them to kind of work with it in their functional movements. They're not bracing. They, they may have a draw in. They may be at least aware that they feel their, um, you know, abdominal muscles contracting with movement. And I think that that is probably where we should be, right? The pendulum swings in both directions. And I think it's somewhere in the middle is obviously the ideal place. Um, you know, I think that that's where, that's where I think the lumbar spine is very difficult. We have a lot of heterogeneity in the actual um, patients with low back pain. You know, obviously we can classify them in some way. You know, the start back tools are great for those type of things as well. But, you know, the reality is, is we have to look at the impairments that the person actually presents with. And if they don't know how to move their core and they don't know how to use their muscles, then we have to start very much foundationally. So has a, has a clinician who's really worked on listening to how you're prescribing or how you're guiding movement, when we look at traditional manual therapy, one of the, the perceived uh, and truly hallmark check-ins that we have is going to be that test retest. Do the movement, do the treatment, do the movement again, did it make any impactful, meaningful change in that pattern or in that person's subjective complaint. Do you tie in some of that same strategy with some of these exercise prescriptions to kind of create that, oh, wait a minute, if I do get some good movement, good meaningful movement out of this by recruiting these muscles, by simulating that motor activity, is that going to change and create therefore better buy-in? How are you using that? Yeah. So I actually use, um, so uh, the KISS principle, right? And, and I know it's ridiculous, but if we keep it simple, it's easier for the patient. They don't need 15 different exercises. They need three that they can do well, and then we can progress. So once we start getting to a point where that they have those couple movements down fairly well, we reassess it. We feel like if they feel comfortable with that, you know, I, I use a lot of uh, motivational interviewing. And so I get a, an idea of their readiness, um, 
their readiness to do additional activities, their readiness uh, for exercise, their readiness to, you know, go to the next stage. Um, so again, I asked them, you know, do you feel like these exercises are difficult? Where where are we at at this point? Do you feel like they're they're not challenging? Do you feel like they're easy? And they identify for me. And so once I hear that they say, yeah, they feel they feel okay, they feel pretty good, then I'm going to go ahead and kick it up in another staged progression. Um, where if somebody says these things are still very difficult, then obviously I need to take some more time and coach it a little bit better. Um, and it's okay. I mean, the reality is I'm, you know, 19 years a seasoned clinician and I can do better. Um, there's, there's that, you know, awareness that, you know, maybe I should have coached a little differently. Um, and so, you know, I take that time to do that. Um, and I, and I have that self-awareness that, yeah, I, I can definitely coach this better or maybe, Hey, We've got to go ahead and progress this patient. So, but but I'm ready to do that too. So it does depend on that patient, you know, obviously in their clinical presentation. And that reflection on your current status in your uh, just your career, as well as uh, how you can continue to evolve, seems to be one of the things that falls out with fellowship training, which ties me into the next question, and it's moving a little bit away from the article and just getting your, your broad idea about the profession, but what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's considering fellowship training? Right. So, you know, obviously I've been involved at multiple different levels, teaching at the entry level, teaching within, um, you know, some residencies and fellowship programs and or, or mentoring, I guess I could even say it from that perspective. But um you know, I think that the benefit of residency first is exposure. Um, what the benefit of fellowship is further refinement. Um, and I think that what we need to appreciate is that the profession is requiring us to look at um, practitioners who want to be advanced level practitioners who really have strong clinical reasoning and superior outcomes. And, you know, um, this is this is going to be an advocacy thing as we go forward. We need to delineate the differences. And if there are additional benefits, they need to be identified for the actual outcome, for the, for the actual intended people. So again, if a student is going through residency, what is the actual intended benefits that that person should receive as a result of going through training? So is it clinical reasoning, additional benefits in their outcomes, you know, better management? Um, and then what's the next step, right? Each of these next steps, also have additional price points, right? So mm -hmm. I always say to somebody, tell me if there's a pro and a con, right? The con is some of these additional educational, um, you know, training certificates and or fellowship type programs have a cost. So what is the benefit to that? And so I say that, you know, I feel my outcomes are directly related to the fact that I had uh, Ron Shank as my um, program director, and he was a great mentor and coach and really, really gets it. I mean, he values the fact that his reasoning is far stronger than his hands, even though his hands are fantastic. Um, he understands exercise therapy and exercise therapy gets his patients better just as much as his manual skills. And so I think that the the bias is that orthopedic manual physical therapy is manual therapy only. But yet every one of these programs have a focus in exercise therapy as well. And so this is a piece that we really have to appreciate orthopedic manual therapy. So again, whether it's refinement and coaching and evaluation and reevaluation, hands-on, hands-off, that is our job as a, as a, you know, going through a fellowship. And I feel like it really does help the outcomes. Fantastic answer per usual for today. So Megan, 
tell me what what other projects besides obviously getting your program off the ground and running to a, a really great start what else do you have in the pipeline right now so um, as you all know I've been transitioning so um, I had several projects that I was finishing up with prior to taking on this uh, this wonderful opportunity and so I am finishing some of those up um, I will probably just be doing some of the projects I have got a Delphi study that I want to take a look at um, um, some of the pain education that's out there and then we're gonna I have a, a systematic review that uh, colleagues and I are um, one with just got published actually, and another and that was on dry needling. I have another one coming out on cervical dosing uh, for exercise therapy. So hopefully you guys will take a look at that one, and it's going to come out. Um, so you know, again, some of this is systematic reviews. I have a clinical trial, but that'll be a couple years away before that gets reported on. So uh, I won't give up. It's just going to be a little bit of a different management for a short period of time until we ensure that this uh, program is up and ready to go according to CAPTI standards. Great. So Megan, I'm sure there's going to be some listeners that have some follow-up questions for you or would like to get in contact with you uh, in the future. How's the best method for them to do that? Sure. So I would say email at this point, Megan period Donaldson at Tufts, T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Uh, you can contact me through that method. Of course, I'm also available within the AOMP website as conference chair, so you can obviously reach out that way as well if you have any questions, and um, I'm happy to field those through email for sure. Well, Dr. Donaldson, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Thanks, thanks to all the listeners as well for your time. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. 